Hello everyone, welcome to Dan Snow's History Hit. What an Aladdin's cave of treats I have for you on the podcast at the moment. Thank you very much, lots of people listening to them. We are sky high in the charts, appreciate that. Hope you're enjoying them all. This one is, it's another corker. I know I'm sometimes not my own best critic, but I, I'll tell you, it is great. We've got Julie Wainwright on the pod. She's an academic at City College University of London. She has written extensively about women warriors, about females in the military. And she's also done a, a lot of broadcasting about that as well. Uh, recently, she's written Sisters in Arms. It's a comprehensive look at female combatants, females in the military, from those who have joined the armed forces openly to those who disguise themselves as men to join. Uh, it is important time to be talking about this. In October 2018, the British Defence Secretary announced that all roles in the military would be open to women. And whilst this is a huge historic shift, it's important to remember that women have been on, around and near the battlefield since the dawn of time. This was great fun to make. Uh, I'll be posting some, some fascinating pictures of some of the people that she talks about on the Twitter feed. I'm at The History Guy. We'll do some on Instagram, the History Hit Instagram. We're going to be doing it everywhere. And also this interview is filmed. So as you know, it'll be going up on History Hit TV. It's the digital history channel. I mean, we've got so many people joining at the moment. It's an absolute joy. It's very, very exciting. So we're going to be going places in 2020. I think in 2020, we will be really realising our dream of becoming the world's best history channel. So thank you very much to all the subscribers who are part of that. You can give the gift of history this Christmas. If you go to the History Hit shop, just type History Hit shop into Google or any other search engine. Uh, or you can just go online and to History Hit TV and you can get yourself a subscription. If you use the code POD6, P-O-D-6, you get six weeks for free. So you spend the whole of Christmas eating, watching great history documentaries, listening to great podcasts without the ads. There you go. Enjoy, everyone. I feel the hand of history on our shoulders. All this tradition of ours, our school history, our songs, this part of the history of our country, all were gone and finished and liquidated. One child, one teacher... One book and one pen can change the world. Thank you very much for coming on the show. Well, pleasure. This is very interesting stuff. <laughs> it turns out that the women have been on the battlefield yes. a lot more than people. Yes. Actually, it's very current. People, I'm in America all the time saying social engineering, women should be on the battlefield. But of course they have been. Women have been integral to warfare. Yeah, yeah. And that's one of the really fascinating things about this um, history. I think, I think it is a kind of hidden history, a forgotten history. Um, a history that almost sometimes you think is kind of deliberately covered up. Um, because one of the things that, I mean, I, I, I should you know, um, explained that I was originally doing this work 30 years ago and then I was approached to, to rewrite my original book that was published in 1989. And um, there's been all this wonderful scholarship that has come out since. And so when I was researching this in the kind of late 1980s, um, I mentioned the Amazons. And of course, there have been these amazing archaeologists in the 1990s who discovered that they went to these grave mounds in um, an area around the Black Sea in Ukraine and what they discovered was that these tombs of um, these Scythian people, um, where they would have a male and a female skeleton, and they would have objects gathered around them, um, they would assume that the swords belonged to the men and the mirrors belonged to the women. So they they kind of had this kind of gendered analysis, and these new archaeologists, women, came along and they were able to sort of forensically examine the wounds on these skeletons and found out that the women had the same wounds as the men. And these Scythian women who, who were raised in a society where 
they were dressed in the same way that the boys were dressed. And there was a kind of androgyny about their culture. And they were also taught to use weapons. And these were the Scythian, you know, these Scythian women um, were the ones that the Greeks understood to be Amazons. And because, of course, in Greek society, you didn't have women warriors, they became this sort of, these kind of superheroes. And it's fascinating how long that myth has persisted. And um, the archaeologist that I was, uh, whose work I was reading, one woman in particular, Adrian Mayer, actually describes how these warrior, these women warriors, you can find traces of them because they were a nomadic tribe all the way to China. So, you know, this is a pretty huge phenomenon that, that happens in Asia. But you find cases of women picking up. So, so, so there's kind of three different categories of how women enter combat historically. So one is that their wives who are going along on, let's say, sort of, you know, campaigns, um, and they find themselves, I mean, they're at the edge of the battlefields and they pick up weapons. Or you find a lot of women um, on Royal Navy yes, battleships. Yes, exactly, helping load the cannon and run the Yes, and, and yeah. what's, what's really intriguing about these examples is that they're, they're kind of reported in this very matter-of-fact way. Yeah, I agree. Um, and uh, one of the cases I found was of, um, you know, it was a report of, um, uh, I think it was the Battle of Trafalgar, and there's a woman aboard this, rather, there's a seaman who's wounded. His wife suddenly appears um, to, to nurse him. She is killed. And, of course, what do they do about the baby? Yeah, I agree. <laughs> there's a baby as well. And, and the way it's reported is not an astonishing thing happened. They're just occasionally reading a little, and it's like, then the women took over the loading of the gun. They're like, what, what women? What do you mean? This is extraordinary. Yes, yes, yes. And, and there's some really interesting examples. Um, so, for example, Molly Pitcher has become a sort of, you know, a kind of generic term. Um, so it was previously understood that Molly Pitcher was a real person, but actually Molly Pitcher was just sort of a generic term for all of these women who show up. And actually, if you look at things like um, the accounts, um, you know, if we're thinking about sort of 18th century colonial warfare in North America, you know, there's accounts for, you know, feeding the women and the children because they're there too. And then you have these kind of examples of women who are sort of held up to be kind of these heroic figures. And they're written about in letters, they're written about in diaries, but they're not, I mean, unless, unless they occupy some sort of particular role, and we can come to that in a minute, but, you know, they, they, they sort of just kind of fade into the background as sort of anecdotes. So I agree, I've done lots of work on the French Indian War, the Seven Years' War in, in Quebec, and the women on that campaign. Yes. But as you say, that's a category where it seems that the women are there as wives and logistic support but sometimes are caught up in the fighting what yeah. other categories you were saying have have you identified in terms of women in combat well the the other category which um is you know completely fascinating to me is these women who are there but there's a sense that uh, so they're disguised as disguised as men and yet there's a sense that someone knows who they are hannah snell Hannah Snell, yes, indeed. You want to tell, she, does she feature in your book? Yes, she does. You want to yes, tell us yes. About Hannah, um, she's one of my favourites. Well, Hannah Snell was. Um, I mean, one of one of the problems that we have with uh, some of these stories is that um, we don't. You know, the accounts that come down to us are they're not written by the women themselves, and of course, they're written after the conflicts, and often they're written so that these women can make a bit of money and their publisher can make a bit of money. But we know that um, Hannah Snell was born in Worcester. Um, we know that um, she had, I think it was both a father and a brother who were involved in, um, you know, who had been soldiers, and which is a feature that happens with a lot of these women. 
Um, and so, the, the, so we know that that she went to London at some point, and she lived with her sister, and she lived with her brother-in-law, and she actually took the brother-in-law's name and you know, took a suit of his clothes. There's a whole story about uh, a husband, uh, you know, a sort of profligate husband who had abandoned her and that she went off to find him. And this is a story that this is often attributed to these women that, you know, this profligate, I mean, why would you go after a profligate husband? I don't know. But um, that they go off to find their husband or they go off to follow their husband, or sometimes they go off with the husband. And there are, there are sort of verified cases of this happening, but that tends to be the sort of romantic explanation. And I think sort of almost a kind of apology for women doing this sort of unusual thing. But Hannah Snell goes off and she signs up as a, as a Marine and she sails off and she's involved in the Battle of Pondicherry. And one of her, um, there's a contemporary biographer who has actually found these discrepancies between her, you know, the, the first biography that's written about her and what she may actually have been doing. So um, there's this story that um, she was wounded in the groin and she ends up in this hospital and there's, a, there's an Indian woman nurse who helps her you know, maintain her disguise. And it, it seems clear that she was able to disguise herself and that, that nobody found her out until she comes back to London. And she wants to claim her pension and she also wants to claim her suit. So there's this wonderful scene where she goes um, across the, you know, she she's in Wapping, but she crosses the Thames and she goes into a pub and she tells all of her mates that, in fact, you know, they were sleeping next to a woman and they all go, ooh. <laughs> and then the next thing is, could, could you know, one of them wants to marry her. Um, and then the next thing is, um, you know, she wants to collect her money and she wants to collect her pension. And so they, they support her in that, which is another thing which you find time and time again, that her mates, mates sort of rally around and support a claim for a pension. So the, uh, yeah, they, they sort of, um, they ambush the Duke Cumberland or something, don't they? It's great fun. But so, so there are these, so there's a category of women who have fought traditionally, but disguised as men. Yes. And then I think there's, a, well, there's another category too, women who are um, sort of given special dispensation. So one of the, one of the phenomenon we find is in Russia. I mean, there's a, there's quite a lot about the Russian women. Um, so we have Nadezhda Darova and her story is quite typical. So Nadezhda Darova grew up in Georgia. She was... She was the daughter of a very um, wealthy landowner. Um, he had also been uh, in the cavalry. And so she says that her nurse was a, was a, the equivalent of a Batman. So, you know, she was, she was uh, raised to ride horses and she was given a little sort of mini cavalry uniform. She had her own sword. And so she was sort of raised as a boy. And, and this, again, is a phenomenon that we find time and again. And then, you know, as a teenager, she's actually married off to an older man, probably for, you know, to support the family estate, keep it going. She has a child. And then she says, kind of had enough of this. And she petitions the Tsar to join the army because, you know, during the Napoleonic Wars. And so she goes off and joins the cavalry. And she has a friend who enables her to take on a male name. So that's another sort of category of women, really, where, you know, they're in a privileged position and they're able to go off and sometimes disguise, sometimes not disguise, but certainly with the support of someone in a position of power. So Nadezhda Darova, um, you know, is able to go off and, um, and after the war, uh, she writes her memoir. And one of the things that I found sort of 
you know, coming back to this research was that she was a really important figure in terms of sort of a kind of burgeoning feminist movement in, in Russia um, before the revolution. So a lot of women had read her memoir and they would come and they'd pay homage to her and she would still be dressed as a man and she would be sort of entertained as a kind of novelty at dinner parties and tell her war stories. Um, and then what happens is that um, there's, a, there's a Russian author of sort of girls' adventure stories and she turns Nadezhda Darova into a kind of um, sort of fictional character that girls just loved. You know, they, they loved this story about this princess who goes off and joins the cavalry and fights during the, the Napoleonic Wars. And then what you have is you find cases um, at the beginning of the First World War of women petitioning the Tsar to join, you know, the Tsar's army because they know about Nadezhda Durova. And they say, well, there's this historical precedent. And one of the things that I found was, uh, you know, I've written about um, a woman named uh, Lyudmila Pavlachenko, who was a sniper in the Red Army during the Second World War, who's a sort of very celebrated case because she allegedly shot 309 Germans. And she was fated at the White House on a tour in 1942 when she came to Britain. And she was actually used as a sort of propaganda figure to try and get women here in Britain into the... Um, you know, the armed services, the auxiliary services. And um, she also cites Nadezhna Darova as a sort of, you know, pioneer of women in the women in the military. So it's extraordinary that, you know, you, you have women reading these stories, being inspired and wanting to go off and do this. So I think the big question is, why did they do it? I would never want to go into combat, you know, and... and Neither would I, <laughs> just in case you think that was a gendered point. No, no, why do they do it? Well, I think that, um, you know, if we think about the French Revolution and um, think about the way in which there was this sort of brief period in which women were allowed to, you know, bear arms and, you know, went into combat, that didn't last very long because suddenly, you know, the, the, there were rumours about them stealing food or eating too much food and sort of not wearing their uniforms properly. And there were all these excuses about why they shouldn't be there. So it was this sort of brief experiment that didn't sort of really work. Um, but what it did give rise to was, you know, you have the women's marches in Paris and you have petitions and, and they sort of celebrate these women who have gone into, gone into battle. And so you, you can see how this idea of going into combat, doing the most masculine of male things possible, means that this is a route into gaining access Political to, rights, yeah, yeah, exactly, um, sort of personhood and, and access to politics and access to sort of the civil space. Which you sort of see in the historiography around the votes for women in 1918, don't you, the idea that they, yeah. they've participated either in the kind of white heat of industry or around the battlefields. Yes. And therefore they have somehow laid claim to citizenship, haven't they? Yeah, and, it's, and, and I found that, that theme time and time again because, you know, Emmeline Pankhurst, for example, goes over in 1917 to inspect the troops of Maria Bochkareva, the Women's Battalion of Death, and Maria Bochkareva is actually entertained in, uh, you know, af after, um, well, in 1917 she goes to uh, America. She's also she's a sort of precursor of Ludmila Pavlachenko. So who what on earth is the Women's Battalion of Death? <laughs> uh, well, Maria Bochkareva is is another fascinating character. Um, so she's a peasant woman from Siberia. 
Um, she's married to an alcoholic. That marriage ends. She marries another man who's a sort of ne'er-do-well. So she has to earn money, and she does things like she goes and works on construction site and she's made a manager and you know she wears the trousers and gets teased for that and um and but she's making money and she sort of learns how to have authority over men eventually she um, also petitions the czar and is is given permission to join um I think one of the Siberian divisions and um and then in 1917 under Kerensky's government she suggests she makes a suggestion that um you know, we should have a women's battalion, and this would be a way, I mean, wonderful thinking, um, this would be a way of shaming men into signing up, because if they see that the women are going off to fight, they will be so embarrassed that they will do their patriotic duty. But it's, a, it's such a double-edged thing, because at the same time, she's sort of saying to women, well, you can do this too, and she gives them, they have to undergo this sort of brutal training but the images of these women these Russian women having and and there's there's you know they're in the New York Times they're in the London Times I mean they're just global it's a kind of global there's global interest in this as a phenomenon um, and that that you know you can see women really responding to that so um, one of the things that I looked at this time was I looked at um, the suffrage magazine Jus Suffragi and uh, so this is published in in London by the women's suffrage, one of the women's suffrage groups. And they have coverage about things that are going on in terms of women's rights all over the world. And they pay particular attention to what's going on in Russia. So you have reports about women working in factories and how much they're being paid. I mean, the detail is really incredible. But they also regularly have these reports and sort of from 1915 onwards, uh, women um, enlisting. So they have to get, you know, if it's before 1917, it's, you know, they have to seek special permission. But lots and lots of these cases. And there's so, so there's a kind of perception in the West that the Russians are sort of way ahead of us. And so the, the, the women's suffrage movement takes a great interest in these, in these women. I'm very struck by today, if you look at the American, uh, American de- uh, Democrats who are running for House and Senate, how many of them have to, or feels like they almost have to be from a military background. They have to say, I am worthy of, you can vote for me, men, because I've performed these tasks on the battlefield. And I'm very struck by this wave in the States yes, at the moment. Yes, yes. I mean, I, I mentioned, she's now a Republican senator, um, Senator McSally. Um, and I think that, that they, they are really important because they've, you know, they've got combat experience. And yes, you're absolutely right. I, I noticed that too, that there's this sort of connection between um, women who have, you know, officer experience, they have combat experience, and they're able to speak about these things with authority. And, you know, they've got this respect from the military. But also, they've been quite pioneering in terms of you know, arguing for women's place within the military and also bringing up things like sexual harassment and sexual abuse. And some of these cases are absolutely appalling. I mean, you know, for Senator McSally, you know, last year to, you know, publicly say, I was, I was sexually abused and um, to be supportive of other women who would come forward, uh, you know, makes a huge difference. So we've got all sorts of interesting examples from history of uh, women in and around combat. It sounds to me like you think the Russian experience in the First World War and then the Civil War afterwards was sort of seminal in, in terms of the 20th century's 
this march of women, the mass participation of women on the battlefield, which you then see for I think Chinese Civil War and various lots of other places, is that is is, is the Russian example important, or does or is it just reflecting the march of women in civil society as well? That inevitably they were going to end up on the battlefield. Well, I think you know if we were thinking in sort of quite pragmatic terms, I think that one of the reasons why you have women entering these military occupational services, I think they're called MOSs, um, is because they're required. I mean, so, you know, in America, um, women, you know, were quite limited in terms of what they could do during the uh, Korean War and also during Vietnam. But then, of course, the draft ends. So how do you fill those spaces? You appeal to women because now you have a civil army and so then you have to then you have to appeal to them and so how do you appeal to them you appeal to them through this address of you know civil rights and women's rights and that's also happening at the same time because there's a push for from women who have always been there or or who've always wanted to be in the military and um you know so i think that the um, i mean just to go back to your point about the russian women i think that they they are really important but they, it's also a very complicated story because one of the things about so, so for example if we take ludmila pavlichenko coming to um, america and britain in 1942 um, i mean she's just part of in britain she's just part of a sort of bigger uh, propaganda drive to get women into the auxiliary services but it but they definitely do use these um, figures of these Russian women partly because women they appeal to British women I mean British women found these you know Ludmilla in her her Russian boots you know her her polished boots I can't tell you the number of times that that gets mentioned but she's really a glamorous figure you know in her in her beautiful uniform um, and so I think that that sort of opens this space for this conversation about well, why aren't we there and why is this seen to be a, a, a you know an exclusively masculine exercise and what does that mean? So it sort of throws up a whole number of issues. And I think that what ha what happens in the military is a kind of microcosm for what happens in civil society as well. I mean, women are pushing to have access to um, you know you know, to all kinds of professions and are counting the same kinds of problems. I mean, obviously, it's very different in the military because you can get killed, but um, particularly if you're in combat. But what you also find in the Gulf War, for example, is that the women are there and, you know, they're supposed to be restricted from from combat, restricted from the battlefields, but it's really messy. What is the front line? Yeah, well, counterinsurgencies are famous for that, aren't they? Because people, women in the intelligence or engineers or... Yeah. Logistic end up you end up being ambushed and you end up being in the front line. Exactly, so. but there are also cases from the Second World War as well, where um, women in the uh, who were flying, you know, uh, transport planes, at some boys were being shot at, but they couldn't they couldn't shoot. So you know they felt very defenseless and saying, you know, what's this about? Or they were even prevented from flying certain kinds of aircraft. Um, so some of these rules feel, you know, very arbitrary. Give us one last last experience that you've come across that you'd like to share you think should be more widely known um well one of the women who i was able to look at in depth was flora sands um, who was an english woman who went off as a nurse from britain in 1914 she went off to serbia and she nursed during the typhus epidemic sort of did you know like just incredibly heroic work she was in her 40s she'd kind of done all kinds of jobs including being a secretary and um, packing boxes in a factory and she just was one of these extraordinary women who just wanted to go off and have an adventure 
And uh, when she wrote her, her memoir in 1927, she opens it by saying, you know, when I was a small child, I always wanted to be a boy and go off and do boys' things. And then, you know, she, she's, um, she's with the Serbian army, they're retreating into Albania, and she's given a choice between being a soldier and being a nurse, and she said, okay, I'll, I'll be a soldier. And, um, and, and, you know, again, I was going back to this material and just feeling the poignancy for her because, you know, she'd fought through all of these battles. Um, she'd been, and, and you know, th this is her adopted country. Uh, she'd had to learn their language, had to learn their customs, you know, um, been wounded several times, been decorated. And yet after the war, they don't know what to do with her. And one of the, the most um, poignant stories she tells is of being a, a kind of regimental, there's a sort of dance and the Prince of Serbia is there. So it's a very big deal. She's in a dress, and she's there with a friend of hers who was one of the Scottish women doctors um, who had also nursed during the typhus epidemic. And he says to her, he says to Florence, well, why aren't you dancing? And she said, well, I can't dance the cola, the sort of national dance, because I'm not in uniform. And um, obviously I can't dance with the women. And he says, well, of course you can dance with the women. And he says, you and the doctor here, you should dance together. And she just how excruciating that was for both of them. You know, almost like they were kind of like this novelty act. And um, yeah, I mean, I, you know, again, I think that um, she stays with me because I think that, you know, if I'd been born in an earlier generation, I might have read her book and thought, you know, she's my hero. I guess she's still, she is one of my heroes, but um, she has a lot to tell us and a lot to, to say to us still now about, you know, how we understand men and women and what we do during wars. Well, thanks so much for sharing her and the other stories in your book. Fantastic. What's it called? It's called Sisters in Arms. Go and buy it, everybody. Thank you. I feel we have the history on our shoulders. All this tradition of ours, our school history, our songs, this part of the history of our country, all were gone and finished and liquidated. One child, one teacher, one book and one pen can change the world. He tells us what is possible, not just in the pages of history books, but in our own lives as well. I have faith in you.